This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hello, everyone. My name is Erin Trelore, and I am the host of Raw Beauty Talks. We're taking you behind the highlight reel of the world's biggest influencers and wellness gurus to get a raw glimpse of what beauty, health, and wellness look like in today's world so that you can feel your absolute best in your body and in your life. Today, we are going to be covering an incredibly interesting topic that so many of us have dealt with in our life or are currently dealing with. We are going to discuss our relationship with food and dieting. Today, I have Dr. Michelle May here with me, who is a recovered yo-yo dieter and the founder of an incredible program called Am I Hungry? It's a mindful eating program and training which offers non-diet, weight-neutral, mindfulness-based workshops, retreats, support communities, and Books. You can check out everything that they offer at amihungry.com. Over 800 health and wellness professionals have been trained to facilitate Am I Hungry programs worldwide. Dr. May is the award-winning author of the book series, Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat, which totally changed my perspective on food and my relationship with food. The books teach mindful eating and help individuals resolve mindless and emotional eating and senseless yo-yo dieting to live a more vibrant life, that life that we all crave. But oh my goodness, our relationship with food is complicated and it can feel like we are trapped by it so often. I mean, I struggled with an eating disorder that was quite severe in my teens and ended up hospitalized for about three months with anorexia. And during that time did for sure learn a lot of tools in regards to getting me out of that specific headspace, but still throughout my twenties really battled with food and periods of binge eating. And so it was so fascinating when I when I found your books and read through them and all the information that you provided, it really did start to transform my relationship with food and my body. So I want to start off by saying thank you on a personal note <laughs> for the work that you're doing. It's so exciting, Erin, to talk to people who have discovered that transformation. I think a lot of us, until we realize that there's another way to do this, we're, it's almost like we're fish swimming in an ocean. Fish don't know what water is because they're surrounded by it. It's just what they know. And I think that's the way it is when you are, especially a woman living in diet culture. We just don't recognize how pervasive and invasive these messages are that surround us all the time. Oh, I love that analogy. Can we just dive right into that then? Can you talk to us a little bit about how we've gotten to this point where our relationship with food is so complicated and relationship with our bodies is so complicated? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It is complicated. And so it would be wrong for me to suggest that there's one simple answer. But I think over the many, many years, as our cultures have become more interconnected, I think there's really been a focus. Uh, that's probably maybe always been a focus on appearance, the way people look. And I think at some point, it was decided that there was an ideal body size and shape that we should all be able to achieve. And this idea that we could achieve that by simply manipulating our food and our exercise I think it's really become one of those 
concepts that people just assume is true without really examining the facts behind that. And so as we try to manipulate our bodies through what we eat and how much we exercise, I think it disrupts this very natural instinctive relationship that we were born with regarding our ability to meet our fuel needs naturally. And I love that. I remember there's one part in your book that you talk about watching your, I can't remember if it was your your children eat and seeing just the joy that they experienced with food and the fact that they stopped eating when they were full and they, the relationship was so pure and so different from what you were experiencing in that moment. But we've strayed so far from that. Yeah, exactly. We stray so far from that when we begin to distrust our relationship with food. We begin to distrust our ability to know when to eat and what to eat. And I'm not saying that children intuitively know what, you know, a balanced diet looks like. Certainly there's parental responsibility there, but when we start to interrupt their ability to be able to decide whether they're hungry or not and to to stop eating when they're full, I think that sets them up for the problems that many of us have struggled with throughout our lives. And on top of that, besides my children, I also observed my husband and a few of my friends who had maintained this natural relationship with food, this very instinctive ability. And I, I began to think, you know, there are adults around who still do this. And so it must be possible to eat when you're hungry, mostly, and usually stop when you're full, it must be possible to do this. And so that's really what set me on the course of developing a process for teaching other people how to do that as well. That's so interesting. This idea that we have to relearn how to connect with our body and our hunger signals and basically relearn how to eat like little babies (laughs) and to connect to that again. But we truly do because whether it's the messages that we're receiving from media or from our parents or from Instagram or from health professionals, there are so many people that are telling us how we should be eating that we've become so disconnected from our own body and the messages that it's giving to us. And I feel like this whole concept around mindful eating is really taking us back home to connect with our body and and the the natural messages that it sends us and that it knows to send us. Before we dive into the how-tos of mindful eating, I'd really love to kind of take a step back and look at the most common struggles that you see between people and food. Because I think a lot of people are struggling with food, but as you said, we don't even realize that we are. We don't even recognize that this relationship isn't a good one, a healthy one. Yes, that's so true. I think in our culture, again, diet culture, it's normal to obsess about food and worry about food or even weigh, measure, count and log food and exercise. So that's become sort of the normal way to do it so much so that we don't even recognize that it's not normal at all. It's just what we've been taught to do. So when I look at these patterns of eating, and, and, and as you mentioned, I definitely struggled with this for many years myself. And so as you look at patterns of eating and patterns that we see in other people, I think you can sort of identify some common themes. So one theme that I often see is overeating, or in some cases, binge eating, where people are primarily responding to triggers in order to decide to eat. So these triggers might be 
something in the environment, maybe the time of day or the sight of food or being at a ball game, or they might be an emotional trigger, maybe boredom or stress or loneliness or anger. They might even be physical triggers. So for example, sometimes we eat when we're actually thirsty or tired. And so when we're in an overeating cycle, we're responding to needs other than hunger. And so I like to say, when a craving doesn't come from hunger, eating probably won't satisfy it, which is why sometimes people notice that they can just eat and eat and eat and not feel satisfied because the underlying need is not fuel, but it's something else. Does that make sense, Erin? Yes, 100%. And I'm sure there's people listening who are saying, oh my God, light bulb moment going off. That's so interesting. I can eat and eat and eat in this situation. And I remember for me that back in my 20s, as I started to become more aware of when I was binge eating, it was often when I was trying to process something emotional. So like I'd been in a fight with a boyfriend or I was feeling quite anxious after hanging out with a group of girls. And it was like, I was uncomfortable with those feelings. So I was trying to use food to cover it up or to avoid feeling the feeling, like shove it back in almost with the food. And so when you start to recognize that the food is not going to fill up whatever it is that you're trying to fill up that you really have to allow yourself time and space to process those feelings and to perhaps talk about them or just to sometimes it's as simple as just allowing yourself to feel the feelings to allow yourself to feel that pain or sadness or hurt or frustration or whatever it is. And then after you've done that, you can really tap into whether or not you're actually hungry or what it is that your body needs. It it makes so much sense. It's so simple, but brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, it is simple. I mean, it's, when you start to look at the actual cycles and, and as you know, in my books, eat what you love, love what you eat. I use the template, the format of the mindful eating cycle to examine the different decisions that we often unconsciously make around food. And it's really clear that if I'm eating because I'm sad, mad, stressed, or bored, I'm going to choose foods that are really based in comfort or pleasure or distraction. It not only affects the fact that I'm eating and how much I'm eating, but it'll affect how I eat the food, what foods I choose, and it certainly affects how I feel afterward. And so I think so many people feel guilty about these patterns, but it's really quite understandable once you begin to look at it. And as you said, if, if you're feeling bad and you're, you're wanting to feel better fast, food is a very easy way to do that. The problem is it's not very effective and you have to keep redosing yourself because it doesn't really, you know, help you address that underlying emotion or need. And so clearly when we begin to start to look at this, we realize that it was never about the food in the first place. And that when I begin to really recognize what my true needs are, not only do I eat when I need to, but I also begin to take better care of myself by managing my other emotions and meeting my other needs better too. So it's kind of this, unlike dieting, which just gets harder and harder and harder every day that goes by, this process in a way becomes easier because as I begin to meet those other needs, I feel 
better. You know, I literally enjoy taking care of myself. And when I'm hungry, I can eat the foods that I love and enjoy that too. So it sort of solves that love-hate relationship that many of us have with food too. Oh, it's so hard when you're in that space. And, and I completely agree because the more that I was able to start tuning into my body and reducing the restrictions, the better I felt and the more I wanted to nourish my body. Now, I don't restrict any foods anymore. I don't have anything on my list really that I say I don't eat except for I don't drink coffee because it makes me feel even more anxious. It really transforms the entire way that you eat. Now, one thing I want to touch on is that cycle of what happens when you're not in tune with your body's hunger signals. So for me, and from what I gather, it sounds like this is a common problem for a lot of people. I would binge and then I would feel so awful after so disgusting and so mad at myself that I would start down this list of things I had to do. Okay. You're going for a two hour run tomorrow. You're going to only eat X number of calories. You're not eating any of these types of food. The diet starts tomorrow. And I would start, you know, restricting and over exercising until the next binge happened. And it was this awful trap of a cycle to be living in. Can you speak at all to that place that that some people get to? Well, absolutely. And I think many people don't recognize that what you just described is the norm, not the exception. It's actually what happens. And there's a lot of reasons for it. We call it the eat, repent, repeat cycle, or the binge, repent, repeat cycle. And what's really happening here is that When we restrict our energy intake and tell ourselves that there are certain foods that we're not allowed to eat, we actually drive both psychological and physiological factors that will cause that whole process to backfire. So specifically, when I make certain foods forbidden, I actually give them more power over me. And in order to avoid them, I have to be on the constant lookout for them. I have to be alert to them. And so in some ways, we're tuning our attention to the very foods that we've told ourselves we shouldn't eat. Some of the other things that happen is if I'm under eating, my body begins to fear that there's not enough fuel around. And so we ramp up this whole series of signals in our bodies, which number one, cause us to reduce our metabolism Number two, causes to be more aware of food. They may even cause us to enjoy food even more, like where food seems to taste even better. And all of this will increase cravings and attention to food. So it's not your imagination that when you're trying to diet or restrict, that suddenly all you can think about are the foods that you're not supposed to have. And if you by any chance break that restraint, then it's very, very difficult to stop eating. And so people feel very powerless. They will sometimes say they feel like they're addicted to food when they're not really addicted to food other than the fact that we all need it to survive. It's just that it feels like you're addicted because once you start, you can't stop because of all these processes that have been set up by the restriction process. So I think a big message that you and I are sharing here, Erin, is that what you described is totally expected from restriction. And so the solution here, even though it seems totally counterintuitive, 
The solution is to stop restricting, stop making foods good or bad, allow yourself to eat what you really love, and to do it in a way that's really satisfying and brings enjoyment instead of guilt and shame and regret that you were describing. That sounds like a dream. (laughs) And it is, (laughs) I know it is absolutely 100% possible. But I know that if you'd said that to the Aaron in my 20s, I would have thought there's no way I'm way too scared to even attempt that because I'll turn into some crazy maniac and I'll gain all the weight in the world. If I allow myself to eat those foods, there's no way that I won't just stop because I knew I think that the way that I was eating wasn't really tied to my hunger level. So how do we start practicing this in bite-sized pieces where I just know there's people who are listening who are going to be like, I could never break my diet rules. I could never stop. I totally understand that. It makes complete sense that the Aaron of long ago would have thought that because I thought that too, because what we were doing was managing our eating through really a fear-based process of being really afraid of certain foods, being really afraid of our own impulses and our own enjoyment of food, being really afraid of losing control. And so one of the things that I like to teach right up front that I put right in the first chapter of the book is this difference between being in control and being in charge. So what you're describing is really about control. I won't eat this. I won't eat that. I'll only eat this amount of that. Then I'll exercise this amount and then I'll weigh and measure and count and log. And that's all about control. Well, mindful eating is not about control. It's about being in charge, which means that I have awareness of my triggers. I have awareness of what I want to eat. I have awareness of my emotions at this moment, or maybe my thoughts. I have awareness of this complex relationship with food that I've developed. And so now with all of that, I'm in charge of making decisions. And sometimes that decision might be to eat the cookies, right? That's it. It's just a simple decision. And so when you're trying to be in control, eating the cookies means you've blown it. And so you might as well keep eating because you're going to have to go back on your diet tomorrow. When it's no longer about controlling yourself and not eating the cookies, but simply deciding to eat the cookies, now it's, okay, I'm going to eat the cookies. Wow, that first one was fantastic. I'm going to have another one. Oh, that was so good. Oh, I'm going to have a third one. Hmm, pretty good. Fourth one, yeah, not so much, you know. I'm going to save the rest of these and I'll have them tomorrow if I want them. It's suddenly just about taking the power back from food. I like to say that when guilt is no longer a factor, common sense will prevail. It doesn't seem possible when you're stuck in that cycle as you were describing, but I promise you, you've experienced it and I've worked with thousands of people who have experienced it. We can literally heal our relationship with food. And one of the first steps is by not making foods good and bad anymore, but allowing all foods that we want to eat. Now, we still might make decisions. Like you said, maybe you don't drink coffee because it makes you feel anxious. Or maybe when you eat certain foods, you don't feel well. Or maybe you're allergic. Or maybe you have other beliefs about food, you know, in terms of ethics or religion or whatever. So there might be decisions that you make, but you're making them not out of fear, but out of conscious choice. It really, truly is 
possible. And I'm not just saying this. I now sometimes think about the foods that I would eat in that period of my life and and during a binge. And I can't fathom how I was A, physically able to get that much food into my body, but B, also that it wasn't making me more physically ill. Because now it's like you say, if I were to eat five or six cookies, I would I'm so connected to how my body feels, I probably wouldn't feel that great afterwards. And I would notice that I'm feeling more tired. And, and so it just seems so impossible in the moment. But I promise, 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 if you start working on some of this stuff, you can absolutely have an entirely different relationship with food. Let me mention two things that I think are important for us to say right now. And one is that if you have an eating disorder, this isn't really a great time for self-help, right? I mean, like if you have an eating disorder, work with a therapist and an eating disorder dietitian who can help you through this. It's really, really important. And you deserve that. You know, people who are trained to work in this area can help you move through this process so much more quickly and more successfully than trying to do it on your own. So I think that's really important to say that. And then the second thing I want to say that's kind of off a different path is that one of the things that happens for people is because we're trained in diet culture, we want to make rules about everything. And so there's a temptation to make mindful eating into a diet too. And so as you're listening to Erin and I talk about our personal experiences with how amazing this process is, just be aware of your brain saying, okay, so I'm only going to eat when I'm hungry. I have to stop when I'm full. Erin said she can only eat six cookies before she feels sick. So I'll never eat more than five cookies. You know, just notice your brain's temptation to make rules out of this. Because the minute you start doing that, you've turned it back into a diet and you know how that's going to turn out. So yes, thank you. Those are both such important notes to make. And of course, yeah, as I'm sharing these stories, I'm trying not to use numbers and I just did, but it is so important to really, as I say, at the end of every episode, tune back into your own body. It's your own journey. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Robbie Detox. Rules and restrictions may apply.
This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the glossing detangler and the perfecting leave-in conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. Friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you a over. And on that note, we will be right back after a word from this episode's sponsor. As you may or may not know, I've been off coffee for the last year as it really wasn't helping my anxiety, but I still wanted something delicious to sip on while I worked. So I was super excited when I discovered Four Sigmatic and their insanely delicious superfood drink mixes, which combine the power of mushrooms with yummy things like cacao and turmeric. My favorite blend is the mushroom cacao mix, which is my go-to for that mid-afternoon moment when I'm craving something chocolatey, or I also love it as a treat before bed. Made with reishi mushrooms, which help boost the immune system and are also shown to have a calming effect, it is perfect for anybody who's looking for a little more zen in their life. Organic, paleo, and vegan, each mix comes perfectly prepped in its own package, so you just have to add water or your favorite nut milk. I should also mention that they do not taste like mushrooms at all. You just get all the benefits of the mushrooms that are in it. For the coffee lovers out there, they We've also got you covered with blends made from organic Arabica beans so that as you sip that daily java, you are getting a boost of the good stuff. Head to www.foursigmatic.com slash rawbeauty15 to get 15% off your online order. That's foursigmatic.com slash rawbeauty15. I'm curious to know, you mentioned triggers and the fact that often, you know, people will be triggered to eat or use food, even if they're not hungry. How do we start to shift away from being so triggered? Because sometimes that can happen subconsciously. Mm. Well, I see a lot of uh, out on the internet in this eating disorder world, I see a lot of things called trigger warnings before posts and things. And you know, I'm not so sure about that because here's the thing. We live in a culture full of triggers. And if you're a person who responds to emotions with eating or you respond to the sight of food or if diet talk is triggering for you, you're going to struggle because those things are all around us. And so one of the things I really love about mindfulness is that it's not about trying to control the external world. It's about being in charge of how we respond to the external world. So I'm not saying that, you know, you should challenge yourself constantly. I'm just saying that when you're aware suddenly that you feel triggered, you know, you're feeling upset or you saw something on your Instagram feed that triggered you that you suddenly say, Oh, wow, what am I feeling? And why am I feeling that way? What was it about that post or about what she said that 
led to these feelings that I'm having and then making a decision about how I'm going to address that. And so triggers are just by the very nature of them. For those of us who've struggled with food, they're going to be around all the time. And so we just have to be very gentle with ourselves as we're learning to change and know that it's going to take time until certain things are no longer going to have that same response. You know, if I could, maybe this would be a good time to share a little bit about how mindfulness actually works. Would that be helpful? Please, yes. So one of the examples I love is think about going into a movie theater. And what do you think most of us might think of the minute we walk in? Popcorn. Popcorn. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that probably most of your audience thought the same thing, right? So we think about popcorn. Well, when we're mindless, in other words, we are out of our mind, meaning that we're not present to what's happening, we might immediately walk up to the counter or send our partner or friend up to the counter to buy that popcorn. So when we are mindless, we will respond to these triggers automatically, habitually. In other words, we react to them. We react out the past over and over again. And of course, it makes sense because you really have no choice but to act out your habits or act out the past when you're mindless because you're, you have to have your frontal lobe online to make a conscious decision or a different choice. So we will react out the past over and over again and we'll get the popcorn even if we went out to dinner before we went to the movie, right? When we're mindful, we walk into that same movie theater. And again, we're not trying to avoid triggers. We're not trying to avoid going to the movies. We're not going to bring hot air popcorn with us. We walk into the movies, we may be aware that, oh, I smell the aroma of popcorn and that really smells good and I want to eat it. And then we think to ourselves, isn't that interesting? I just ate dinner. Am I actually hungry right now? No, I'm not having any physical signs of hunger. So this is clearly a trigger or a cue in the environment that's driving me to want to eat. I could get popcorn if I really wanted to, but I'm kind of full already and I think I'd feel really full if I ate it. Maybe what I'll do next time is go to the movies first and have the popcorn instead of going to dinner. (laughs) You know, what this does is it gives us the ability to respond to the environment in a conscious way. We may or may not eat the popcorn. That's not the important part of mindful eating. The important part is the decision, the conscious decision. So it gives us response ability for the choices that we make instead of reacting out of habit. Does that connect? Yes, I love the the concept of response ability and creating space between a trigger and a decision that you're making so that it's not happening subconsciously, but you're actually stopping and thinking and taking a breath and you can choose to have the popcorn. But even that process of being in choice and getting to make that decision will create a different reaction or response to that process of eating the popcorn. It's just an entirely different experience. Absolutely. Because if you're choosing, then there's no reason to feel guilt or shame. There's no reason to punish yourself with exercise. You're simply making a choice You might make a different choice next time. You might make a different choice in four hours. It doesn't matter. You're just choosing. And so instead of 
constantly trying to plan out your whole day or your whole week or your whole life in terms of what you're going to eat, you're just making decisions as those decisions come into your process. Amazing. So where do we begin when it comes to mindful eating? How do we start to practice this this concept? Well, I think a really great place to start is by tuning up your awareness. And a simple thing that you can do, and I'm going to qualify that by saying it's deceptively simple. One of the things that you can do is whenever you notice that you feel like eating, just pause for a moment and ask yourself, am I hungry? Am I actually experiencing any physical signs that my body needs fuel? So what this does is it puts that pause in, like you were talking about how important it is to have a little space between the trigger and the response, right? So it gives us a little pause moment, and it also allows us to tune from whatever the trigger was, whether it was emotional or environmental, and allows us to tune in to notice what our physical needs might be at that moment in time. So we don't ask the question, am I hungry, in order to decide whether we're allowed to eat, but we're asking the question, am I hungry, to help us notice why we want to eat. That doesn't mean that if you're not hungry, you can't eat, like we talked about before. It just simply means that we're now going to make a conscious decision about eating or not eating based on the information we gather. Does that make sense? Totally. It's it's allowing us to gather more information before we make an informed choice as to whether or not we eat. So what are some of the physical signs of hunger for people who may be so super disconnected? I can certainly say that I was at one point. I didn't honestly feel hungry ever or feel full. Like I didn't know what that felt like anymore. That's right. Yeah, that's very common. We've, we've kind of learned to be disconnected through the process of dieting or simply the mindlessness that so many of us move through our lives in general with. We just don't notice what's going on in our bodies. So I think it helps to understand what causes hunger. It is basically your body's signal that you're needing fuel. So I kind of like to think of it like a fuel gauge, right? Like it's your way of checking your fuel gauge before you pull into a gas station (laughs) or a fuel petrol station or a fuel station, depending on where you're listening from. So hunger is caused by two main things happening in your body. One is that your stomach is empty. And so you're more aware of the contractions, the muscular contractions of your stomach. And the other thing that's happening is your blood sugar is falling. And so you might be aware of the symptoms of lower blood sugar. So specifically, when you're aware of your stomach contracting, right up there in your upper abdomen, right underneath your sternum, your breastbone is where your stomach sits. And in that area, you might be aware of hunger pangs or grumbling or growling or a feeling of emptiness or hollowness. Especially when you get really hungry, you'll notice a lot more of that. And then the blood sugar symptoms are more related to energy because your blood sugar supplies the energy to your body, to your cells, and to your brain. And so when your blood sugar starts dropping, you might notice that you become less productive, maybe a little more distractible, maybe you start making mistakes, maybe you feel irritable or hangry, right? Or you might even notice that you're feeling tired or weak. And as you get more and more hungry, you might notice that you feel even shaky or develop a headache, all because your blood sugar is dropping. So 
The thing that's important to notice about this is that these are physical symptoms. They are not thoughts. They're not feelings. They're not cravings. They're physical symptoms and they're the way that your body indicates its fuel needs. So if you're not used to noticing them, it might take some practice to get you used to noticing again. So just keep practicing, keep checking in, and you might at some point be aware that, oh yeah, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. That's how hunger feels to me. Going back to that concept that we had about young kids, you can always tell so easily when young kids are hungry, often before they even have recognized it themselves by the way that they're behaving and the tone of their voice. My little guy's body gets all slumped over. He's not reasonable anymore. And it's all the same types of signals that we see within ourselves. So once we've recognized, okay, I actually am hungry. I've got physical signs that I'm hungry. What's the next step in mindful eating? Well, it depends on which direction you want to go. The way that we go in the book then is we start to look at, okay, I'm not hungry. Why do I want to eat? And that's when we start digging into triggers, trying to understand a little bit more about what are the reasons that we feel like eating when our body doesn't actually need food. Another direction you could go is, okay, I am hungry. Now I'm going to make a decision about what to eat. And this is where what we talked about earlier about how important it is to allow all foods into your diet and to recognize that you don't need a bunch of nutrition rules, but the simple principles of balance, variety, and moderation will guide you to eat in a way that will meet your needs. And so it just sort of depends on whether you're struggling more with emotional eating or just struggling with that diet mentality and, you know, what should I eat? What should I eat? And that's another thing I love about mindful eating is it's not one size fits all. It's not one specific pathway. It's literally trying to understand what is true for you, what makes sense for you. And so therefore you've got to focus on the areas where you're really struggling and maybe some of the other areas aren't as big of an issue for you. Mm, it's so true. There's, you know, over 7 billion people in the world and there are 7 billion bodies and there are 7 billion different ways to eat. So it really goes back to this idea that you are the most knowledgeable authority on your own body and you can search for answers. You can look to me or Michelle or your doctor or a naturopath, but at the end of the day, if you're not able to tune into your own body and to start to recognize some of these things that we're talking about and to start to practice, it takes practice. It's really hard to start to figure out what diet of food, I don't mean diet as in restricting food, but what assortment of food and arrangement of food is right for your body. So it really is a practice and it really does take time. But if we can look at it almost like a science experiment, you know, go into it from a place of compassion and grace for ourselves that we're going to make mistakes along the way. And sometimes we're going to get triggered or we're going to eat too much and feel really crappy afterwards. But that it's all just the process of learning about yourself and starting to understand your body better than anybody else. Mm, I, I think that's so beautifully said. And I, I want to just echo about sort of thinking of it like a scientific experiment, because if we can approach this with curiosity and interest, instead of the perspective that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it, 
I think we become so much more open to learning from the feedback that we get. We will make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes all the time. I still do. I assume you still do. And we can learn from those mistakes, right? We can, instead of saying, oh, I've blown it, or I'm never going to learn this, I'm never going to get this right, we simply say, hmm, okay, well, what did I learn from that? Mm, I love it. Would you be able to touch at all on this concept that I keep hearing about, that it is not just what you eat, but how you eat and who you are when you show up to eat, both from a physical standpoint to a mental standpoint, and how this affects and interacts with the food that we're putting in our body? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. I think sometimes people think that mindful eating is just about how you eat it, like how you consume the food. And they imagine that mindful eating means you have to be in a quiet environment, eating only by yourself and chewing each bite 32 times or whatever that (laughs) construct is, right? You know, and I'm sure that maybe that's all mindful eating is for some people, but we really look at mindful eating as the entire decision-making process around eating, the entire awareness of eating. But specifically, the act of eating itself is a wonderful place to practice to tune up our awareness. So I like to say that mindful eating is eating with intention and attention or purpose and awareness. In other words, actually thinking, what is my intention for this snack or this meal? Is this primarily a pleasure experience? Is this simply to get fuel in so I can go, you know, work the rest of the afternoon? Is there a health condition that I'm concerned about that I want to pay attention to as I'm choosing my food? You know, there's all kinds of intentions that we might have for eating, and they're going to be different at different times. So we just simply pausing to take a moment to notice that intention will help us in terms of what we choose, how much we eat, and how we actually process that whole eating experience. The second part of it is that attention or that awareness. And so I think if people could, while they're listening to this, if you could even just take a moment and and if you're hungry, get yourself a small snack, maybe even just a bite of chocolate or a piece of fruit or something, and really make eating a multi-sensory experience, beginning with making it a feast for the eyes, noticing how beautiful that piece of fruit or whatever it is that you've chosen, what does it look like, smelling it, touching it, feeling it, and then as you put it in your mouth, becoming fully aware of the sensations on your tongue. Are you sensing salty, sweet, bitter, acidic or umami, which is savory. And then noticing the aromas, because other than those five tastes, everything else you experience as you eat is really coming from the smell of your food. And so that combination of aroma and taste is what gives food flavor. And so as you begin to really tune in to the full experience of eating, it becomes a sensuous experience You can get so much more enjoyment out of the food that you're eating. And because it slows you down, it's easier to tune in and stay aware of the signals that your body's giving you about enjoyment and satiety as well. That is so true. The point about actually feeling satisfied. If we're not fully using all of our senses as we're eating, it's a lot easier for us to finish the experience and not even feel like we've we've had a a moment or had a break or had 
had that nourishing experience. And the reality is we eat, well, again, it's going to be different for everybody, but for most of us, somewhere in between three to six times a day. And I like to start looking at these moments as an opportunity to really tune out of our devices, as hard as that can be, to shut the computer, to take some deep breaths, to nourish your body. It doesn't have to take an hour every meal, but it really can become this beautiful way of honoring your body and of taking a moment for yourself. And that moment, I promise, will you'll make up for it in spades with your productivity later on by just being mindful and in the moment of, of eating your food. Dr. May, where can people go to connect with you for more information and to learn more about this incredible work that you're doing? Oh, thank you for asking. I think the best place is our website, amihungry.com. So it's A-M-I-H-U-N-G-R-Y.com. There's loads of things on there. There's even a free tab where you can get all kinds of free information, check out our blog, things like that. But one of the freebies I'd really like to offer right now, because I think it makes a big difference in the understanding that people may have about this work, is to download the first chapter of Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. So if you go to amihungry.com slash chapter one, so chapter is spelled out and then it's the number one. So amihungry.com slash chapter one, you can download the first chapter of this book and it will explain to you the mindful eating cycle. You can look at restrictive eating, overeating, instinctive eating, and the eat, repent, repeat cycle that we talked about. And it will also explain the a pendulum analogy to understand the differences between being in control and being in charge. It's a really jam-packed chapter that will give you a lot of understanding about mindful eating and how it could very well open the door to a completely transformed relationship with food. Perfect. And we'll make sure that we have the link to that in our show notes, as well as a link to a spot where you can purchase her book if you're interested in reading that. Thank you so, so much for carving time out of your day to be here with us. I can't thank you enough for what you've done in regards to my relationship with food. And I know that so many others can attest to the same thing. That's it for this episode, but please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single show. If you like this episode, please take a moment to leave a review, take a screenshot and share it on social tagging at Raw Beauty Talks. We'll be regramming your posts every week. As we wrap things up, remember your body is different than any other body out there. So as you listen to these episodes, keep tuning back into yourself to see what truly resonates for you. We'll see you next time. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.